Hello, and welcome back to the Inner Call Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Flair. I am here to help you hear your intuition. And I bring on guests to help you understand where your intuition might be getting lost. So today's guest, fantastic guest, Eliza Van Court, speaks about taking up space. And I believe that that is a really important part of the intuition. Because if there is no space to hear yourself, if you are not taking up space in the world, it's very likely that the external feedback of the world is going to get really, really loud and you can't hear your internal feedback. You've heard me say on this podcast time and time again, when the external feedback is louder than the internal feedback, intuition is lost. There is no way around it. And so I wanted to bring on Eliza Van Court, who is an author, a speaker, a teacher, a podcaster, and a survivor. And she wrote this incredible book called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. It was very well received for good reason because it dives into women being able to be a more empowered version of themselves. Now, I think it's true for all genders, but she really comes at it from the perspective of the feminine and how we shrink, we play small, we don't claim our space. And of course, you and I both know if we're not claiming that space, we don't have the ability to be intuitive. Eliza has a fascinating life story. She is truly a survivor. She was repeatedly kidnapped as a child, and that is a tremendous survival story. And then as an adult, she lost the ability to communicate for some time after being hit by a car. So facing those major challenges in life, she knew that she had to get back on the horse and do life one small step at a time. And her work is now to help others make those big transformative experiences in their own life too. She is a delight to speak to. We have a really interesting conversation It gets deeply personal, and I really appreciate Eliza for her vulnerability in coming on the podcast. It was a really wonderful conversation that I am honored to have shared. It is another part one, part two podcast, so we're going to be launching today part one for you to listen in on, and then come back here next week. Come join again for part two, because I promise you part two is definitely, definitely worth it. I would suggest if you know anyone in your life who's having a hard time speaking up, claiming space, or anyone who's in a situation that, you know, might be feeling very restrictive for them, whether within partnership or family or work, or they're really not sure how to hear their voice and how to speak it out loud, definitely send them this podcast or send them a copy of Eliza's book. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy the episode. So nice to meet you. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think your your story really ties in. The inner call is all about living an intuitive life, which in its very essence is living a life where you follow your own internal feedback versus the feedback of the external world. You have written and you speak about so much about owning space and taking up power. And I think that really also speaks to claiming that internal feedback, right? Like making sure you have the space to allow it in. Absolutely. I am fascinated by your work because it is all about women claiming space, but really anyone claiming space, particularly women who I think have been kept a bit smaller, a bit more constricted. You and I both know that. We see it out in the world. And you've written this book that is a woman's guide to taking up space. 
So first of all, like, where has this idea of taking up space originated? Like, where where was like the birthplace of this idea that maybe you weren't taking up space? Well, actually, the birthplace was when I was about four, believe it or not. My mother was a wonderful mom, and then she became paranoid schizophrenic. And she kidnapped me three times. And one of the times we went across the country by truck, from truck stop to truck stop to truck stop, hitchhiking from New York to California. And what happened on that trip made me start to really conflate invisibility with safety. I thought, if I can just be invisible, I'll be safe. But of course, we all know that being invisible isn't safe. It's terribly dangerous. And slowly, I started clawing myself out of that place. And I was pretty good at helping other people claim space, not so much myself, which is often the case. And then I had a terrible, terrible injury. I was riding my bike. Somebody hit me with their car, blew through a light, lost my ability to communicate. And the process of rebuilding that really didn't just teach me about communication. It taught me about how do you walk in a room and command the space. And that was the journey. That was the journey. And it was a long road, but it was such an important road. And I really believe a lot of the things we go through are either going to be lessons or they're going to be nightmares and you can use them either way. Mm, Yeah, that's beautiful. What a story. There's so much I'm going to circle back to just in that origin story, because it's, it's ripe with, with a really juicy ability to say, okay, I'm going to choose the life I want to live versus I'm going to live the life I've been offered in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But first, from the very get-go here, you know, when you say taking up space and learning how to take up space, how do you define space? Well, for me, it's not just physical space. It's emotional space. It's political space. It's your space in your relationship. I mean, we've all made ourselves small in a relationship. We've all decided we don't deserve a promotion and we've made ourselves small at work. And so for me, space is really a metaphor for the fact that women have had to shrink. And in fact, we've been rewarded for shrinking for so long. And I believe it's time for us to expand. Mm, Yeah, that's very true. I'm also wondering, like when you speak of that and the shrinking in your own life and in the work that you've done with other people, what are examples of, of shrinking and what are examples of being expanded and like taking up that space? Well, I'd say one of the most basic Basic examples of shrinking is our tendency to apologize. So for example, the other day I was walking through the grocery store and somebody slammed into me. They just weren't paying attention. This big dude slammed into me and I said, sorry, he slammed into me. And I said, sorry, you know, that's a way of making yourself small. Being on an airplane, these are just physical examples and somebody takes up both the armrests. You should get one. (laughs) So those are all things. Yeah, those are all ways where we make ourselves small or in a relationship. You know, there's a problem. You both have a problem. You're working it out and you're the one saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'll change. I'll do it differently rather than making sure it's a collaborative effort. So all of these things are ways we just make ourselves small. Expanding into a space is, well, what I call claiming space is living unapologetically and bravely. So living the life of your choosing unapologetically and bravely. And that's really what claiming space is. And that means you don't apologize for being who you are. You take care of your needs. And also you make sure you're lifting up other women. To me, that's a critical part of claiming space. You can't claim space with a one woman army. You just can't. Mm, 
Mm. So for me, this is like bing, 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 because the very fundamental belief that I have in intuition is that it requires you to place internal feedback over external feedback. And when we are in the experience of living in an external feedback world, we're reacting to everything versus creating it. So it sounds as well like when we shrink, we're just in constant reaction. Oh, I love that. It's true. I mean, my background's in political science and the performing arts, and I was an acting teacher for 20 years. And one of the things we talk about in the Meisner technique, I taught a modified version of the Meisner technique that I developed over 20 years, is that we don't really pay attention to our gut at all. So here's my favorite example. You're walking down the street, somebody gives you a mean look. And what you do is you go, ouch, right? You do a little ouch, and then you fly up in your head and you very quickly say, you know what, they don't know me, forget them. And then you go down and, you're, and your head goes, it's okay, gut, everything's fine, and you keep walking. And you don't even know you went through that process, but you did. You just turn the pinch, ouch, and then you discarded it, which is good. You need to do that in life. And we train ourselves to do that, to protect ourselves. But there's a point at which there's diminishing returns. And instead of going, ouch, we say, oh, it's not bothering me, when really it is. And that's where we have to delineate those two things. And that's where it's so tricky. Mm. Interesting. So when you have brought in this Meisner technique, how have you started then creating more of a gut connection through the technique? You're going right into my juiciest, most fun stuff here. <laughs> so the Meisner technique is based on the idea that acting is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. It's not about make-believe. It's about living truthfully and just imagining the circumstances. And so we start out with something called the repetition exercise, where we teach people to viscerally put their attention on their partner and say what they see. And then eventually they say what they think their partner is feeling. And then finally they say what they think they are feeling. And they are taught, you're taught not to think about it, but just to repeat, repeat, repeat. And it really is a way of getting back to that feeling. What we have is little kids, right? Which is, I'm upset. Wham! <laughs> you know? Now, we don't want to walk around crying and screaming and yelling. If we just listened to our guts, I think we would go around just being horrible a lot of the time. We need to combine our guts with our heads. But most of the time, we ignore our guts and we try to work just from our heads. And that just doesn't work. Okay. So as someone who hasn't done the Meisner technique, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I want to go back and like really understand this. First of all, I love what you said. The the acting is living truthfully in an... An imaginary circumstance, yep. An imaginary circumstance. Living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. Ooh, beautiful. First of all, I just wanted to note that because how gorgeous is that? Sanford Meisner said that. I, I did not. So I want credit to credit the man who said it. <laughs> well, obviously, brilliant mind because, oof, that's, that's some juicy way of defining acting in a way I've never thought of before. But then the technique. So if you and I were to do it, I would sit in front of you and I would feel into my gut, kind of look you in the eye. And at the same time, going through the feeling and say like, okay, what do I think Eliza's feeling? Is that is that the idea? Or what am I feeling that Eliza's feeling? You're not even doing that. That's the amazing thing. If you want, I can show you. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. 
I'm into this. Okay. So, so you would start with a very simple ob- like observation. And we're so taught not to observe people and not to say what we see. We're taught to really pathologically lie all day long, right? So, you know, we just aren't supposed to tell the truth. And so if someone says, how are you doing? You're supposed to say, I'm fine. How are you? Even if your aunt died, right? It's not true. So Meisner's very different. So what I would say is I would look at you and I, I would say the first thing that came to my mind. So I would say, you have blonde hair. And then you would say, I have blonde hair. Ooh, okay, let's do, I would say, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, all right, let's, let's do, it. do it. So I would say, you have blonde hair. I have blonde hair. You have blonde hair. I have blonde hair. And you would have to answer it so fast. So the point of this is to keep you from thinking about that blonde hair. You have to repeat so fast that it. we always say that the technique is there, the repetition is there to inoculate you from going into your brain. Ooh, okay. I so love the that. faster you say it, the less chance you have. So if I say you have blonde I have hair. blonde hair. You have blonde I have hair. hair. You have blonde have hair. hair. Now, eventually you would say something you saw in me. So you might say, you're smiling. And then I would say, I'm smiling. And then we'd go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then I might say, you know, you look happy. Mm. And I would say, I look. And you'd say, I look happy. And you can't disagree with me at first. You just have to say, I look happy. And if you feel angry, you can say in your face, I look happy. Like, but you can't change it because he wants you just to not think about it. And then eventually you start saying what you feel. So I could say, you have blonde hair. And I could say, you know, you could, I could say, you have blonde hair. You say, I have blonde hair. And then I can say, I don't trust you. And you'd be like, what? How is that coming out of nowhere? Well, in my family, my father, when I was younger, was a child from World War II. And there was a fear of Germans. And when I was younger, he was prejudiced against blonde people. Now he's deeply ashamed of this. And so I have a fear that makes no sense, but it's there. And so if I meet a blonde person, I have to go in my head and go, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that's prejudice. Yeah. Right. But if I don't acknowledge it, I might start treating them differently than I would somebody else because I'm not aware that my bias is coming into play. Mm. Ooh, right? okay. So and, yeah. So that is such an interesting conversation, right? Because like what's the difference between bias and prejudice and intuition and gut and knowing? Well, I think that you can be biased, you can be prejudiced, and all of those can come from your gut. I mean, people can be trained to believe horrible, racist things. People can be trained to believe that women aren't competent. People can be trained to do all of these things. And I actually don't think there's anything wrong with our feelings about things. Feelings are just feelings. The problem that happens is when we deny them, because then we can't manage them. So for me, the Meisner technique is based on the idea that there's no shame in me saying, I don't trust you because you're blonde. That's just my training. It's not great training, but Mm. it's my training. The shame is if I then don't go, wow, okay, I feel like I don't trust her. So I'm not going to really treat her well because I know she's untrustworthy rather than, oh, that's, that's my stuff. I'm having this really big reaction. I better get that under control. And so I think that the big mistake we make in society is we put really judgmental words on feelings. It's the actions we need to be worried about. That's what differentiates you from somebody who's trying to do the right thing and somebody who's being cruel. Mm. So, so you must have like a really interesting take on intuition then. Like when I work with intuition, I actually separate it from emotional response and from like something that's like a gut reaction. I look at it as 
you there's energetic information in the world and we're in translation mm -hmm. of it right like and it's separate from verbal cues it's separate from being able to see anybody it's completely energetic but of course within that same vessel we've got a ton of emotions that are not intuitive at all and just reactionary and stereotypical and i think there's so much inner self work to be done around like well what's intuition like what's the energetic information that does say that person's gonna f me over versus like right the right in bred feeling of stereotype based off of lineage i'm curious if you have a relationship with the other type of intuitive information that would be like truth with a capital t right like that sense of like what is truth versus what is learned because we are these complex beings we got all sorts of emotions Right. Well, I mean, everyone's truth, I think, in many ways, is so relative. So that's a, that's a tricky one. But I think for me, I, I think in some ways we ha we're on the same page in that I don't believe that people are born racist or sexist or angry or mean or are trying to, you know, get to the top at the expense of everyone else. I think we are trained to do that. I really and, and I argue with people about this all the time. I think people are fundamentally good. I just believe that in my heart, but I do think that we have training that gives us emotional responses that are not necessarily coming from that fundamental humanity, which to me is based in kindness and goodness. And so much of my work in, in acting, in my book, in my coaching, in my speeches is all about trying to get people to kind of really tune into the emotion. Because I think, for example, using the blonde example again, if I say, you know, I, okay, I feel like I don't like her. She's blonde. That's step one. The next step is that's ridiculous. And then the next step is for me to tap into my humanity and go, huh, I feel bad that I don't like her because she's blonde. And that to me is my primal self. And I think actually when you name the ugly stuff, that's the only way that you give it a chance to go away. If you ignore it, that's when it hangs with you because you don't want to believe it's there. Oh, for sure. You shed a light on it, then you're aware. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I worked as a psychic for a very long time, for like 14 years. And one of the things that I would do with my advanced students is to say, if you're going to do this work professionally, and I think it's true for any therapist too, you got to know your blind spots and you got to know how you feel about the tricky topics because something will come up and you'll kind of mm. wonder like, well, am I reading this energetically or is that like my past bias coming into play? And the moment that you hear yourself saying something that you're like, oh, that's very on target with what I believe, you got to question it. But I think that's true for all of life. You know, the sense of, huh, interesting, this judgment I all, I all of a sudden have that just seems to perfectly line up with the judgment I always have. It's an interesting play. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We, I mean, we do have that whole confirmation bias and that whole, you know, you see something and you say, see, I knew I was right because I already believed it. And now it fits into that thing. And often actually we're, we're taking certain variables out of the equation and we're not really pulling the whole thing apart as deeply as we need to be. I, I mean, there, and I couldn't believe, I could not agree with you more in terms of we really have to kind of check in with ourselves because I think so much of the work when it comes to getting in touch with your emotional life in particular is understanding that there is so much in there that you don't, I call it your, you know, your shadow self. You just want to ignore that shadow self. You don't want 
to know that it's there. And you have to just let that shadow self in. You have to let it in. And that's how you're able to actually tune into the light part of yourself, I think. So then what is the transformation between I'm feeling my feelings, I'm working on the shadow side and stepping into taking up space? Where do we then, like what part of that is allowing us to take up space? To me, it's bravery. And bravery is not the absence of fear. I think that there's, you know, whenever you see some guy in a movie and he's got a sword and he's running into a battle and he's like, I am not afraid. I'm like, how can you not be? There are pointy things out here. That's insane. You know, real bravery is I am really afraid and I'm going to do this thing anyway. That's bravery. What's what's brave about doing something that isn't hard? Absolutely nothing. Either you're crazy or it's just not really that hard for you. So therefore it's not brave. So for me, the big leap is how am I going to be brave here? I I know what I need to do. So now I just need to do it, even if it's uncomfortable. Mm. And do you feel like that kind of bravery requires the self-awareness that you've just spoken about as well? Yeah, because you can convince yourself you don't need to be brave. You can, you, I mean, think about the worst examples, right? Somebody being really racist and they, some man is walking towards you who's a black man on the street and you're a white woman and you clutch your purse and move to the side, right? If you don't think that you are coming, that's coming from your own stuff that you've been trained to do, then you'll justify it. You'll say, oh, well, they're scary. They're big. And it's, and, you know, and I don't know that person and I'm going to do, it's not me. It's just, you know, it makes sense. And then you don't have an opportunity to be brave because you've convinced yourself what you're doing is okay because it's hard to kind of tune into the fact that maybe you have things to work on like every human in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Could you walk me through perhaps an example of your own life where you've been called upon to have that bravery and to take up the space and perhaps some of the process that you watched yourself go through in, in the method that you described? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. No one's really ever asked me that. When people talk to me, they often say, you know, oh, you seem like you have it all together. You're so strong. And the truth is, I, I feel really scared a lot of the time. I, I'm just like everyone else. I'm sort of just trying to get through. And I think I have to be brave almost every day. I mean, it's scary to, to go do what I'm doing. It's scary to do what you're doing. I mean, every time you put your opinion out in the world, somebody can tell you you're stupid and you're oh, what, a, sure. what a dumb opinion and you're a horrible person or whatever. And I think, you know, that just on a more meta level is true. I guess if I were to really say the thing that was hardest for me, it was that when I had to actually no longer be in my marriage, because Mike's husband's a wonderful human being. He really is. And we met when we were 19. And we just came to a point where I went in this direction, you know, and he went in this direction. It just wasn't working. And understanding that you can care about someone and they can be wonderful, but for some reason they just can't keep going with you on a journey. It's one of the most painful things you can ever go through. And to be able to then say, okay, I'm married to a physician husband, all my needs are taken care of, and I'm going to walk away from that and try to do my own thing. That was, that was very, very, very scary. And it probably took me 
longer than some people to decide to make the move. But eventually I realized, you know, you only live one time. So Mm. I love stories like that because I think they are the definition of brave and it is the very definition of taking up space and following internal feedback over external feedback. Cause I imagine many people told you you're crazy. Like you got a great life. Why would you leave that? Is it really that bad? Have you tried therapy? Like there's so many external right. factors. Yes. <laughs> and the question is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, but, but it's, it's that call then from the inside to say there's more, I'm going to bet on myself. What, what does that yeah. look like for you? Was, oh yeah. What was that voice? Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> well, I think I'm incredibly oppositional, which definitely helps. There's a wonderful Maya Angelou saying, which says, want me to do something, tell me I can't do it. And I definitely am of that school. When I first was going to open my Meisner studio, I was teaching in Boston, moved to Ithaca and everybody, and I'm saying everybody said, you know, it's a professional acting school you're going to do a professional acting school in Ithaca, New York. There's no market for actors. That's insane. And I just thought, well, now I'm totally doing it. And I knew I could do it because I knew that I was teaching people something that was had so much more value than just acting. And that's what happened. And it was a similar thing to when I was going to write my book. So many people said, are you serious? You're almost 50. You're going to write a book now, your first book. You, you didn't even go to school for writing. Like, what are you doing? And I said, I know that women need this book. And I would tell people what it was about. Everyone said, what's claiming space? That makes no sense. Now it's kind of in the lexicon, but it wasn't at the time. It was a weird concept. And for me, both of those times, it was just one of those things where I had to say, I believe that what I'm doing has value And I'm scared because everybody's telling me it doesn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that was where I had to really be brave. And it was scary. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did it. So thank you (laughs) on behalf of society and on behalf of your own, your own spirit. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Don't forget, subscribe. If you are one of the people that listen to our podcast and we actually got stats back, like 70% of you listen and you're not subscribed and it would just be the best gift to subscribe. So click that little button so that you can be a subscriber. You can be an innie at the Intercall Podcast versus an Audi. Come be an innie at the Intercall Podcast. So subscribe. We would really appreciate it so that we can bring more guests, bigger guests, Guests you love. Thanks for being here. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every Every time you buy gas, use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. 
Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.